Escaped Sapiens. Can I ask, when you're investigating uh, these sorts of things, what sources do you use? Like, what 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 do you do to pry apart stories uh, of this nature in your own research? So, say for say for example, you um, so let, let, let's focus on on the um, the Uyghurs in China. So, if if I wanted to do an investigation and I want to see personally, is this a story I can trust? Uh, how do I go about doing that? How, how do I, because there's a flood of information. You, there, there are stories every day. And how do I know which ones I can trust? Is, is there some metric I can use? Is there some set of techniques that you personally use to, to pry open um, this sort of thing? Yeah. Well, you're very familiar with the methodology, uh, Shane. Constant doubt. Nothing but doubt. That's how, that's how you proceed. Uh, about all of your sources. And then you make tentative, uh, temporary uh, conclusions. So, for example, I've just written an article, about a 6,000-word article on the, on the Uyghur question. Mm -hmm. Basically, what I've, what I've concluded, uh, and, and let me I'll put this up front, and I think I did in my article as well. My first conclusion is we, there are reasons for concern. There are reasons for cons being concerned about what's going on in in uh, in China in, in in Xinjiang? Why? Because there's a lot of noise about human rights abuses, and this is a pretty serious case. These charges are pretty damn serious. So, if you're a human being and you are intelligent and you want truth to win, you don't blithely accept a particular version. You recognize it could be true. And as long as it could be true, we need to watch out and to investigate and to be very, very careful in how we proceed. Uh, so that's, that's, that's my, that's, that's, that, that's number one. But there are some problems about my accepting this narrative that's being pushed at me from some quite respectable sources, but also some really problematic sources. The respectable sources might include uh, the New Yorker. Uh, that's had a, there's a, it's got a, I'm not sure they've all come out yet. It's got a four part series on, on the Uyghur uh, situation. Um, the Intercept, which I regard as sometimes a very useful source of anti-establishment critical journalism, but it too, uh, by someone, also by someone whom I admire, Jeremy Scarhill, they also have an, a recent article uh, that, that draw, uh, draws on, um, this is where it gets a bit worrying, draws on unspecified government documents that have somehow magically come their way. Um, but they had a kind of Ouija, but what, but, but here are the the two, two or three main factors that worry me. A, the basic convenience of the Ouija story. It's just so convenient for this beating of the drums for war against China that has been getting more and more incessantly louder and louder uh, ever since Trump started um, his idiotic uh, trade war. I, I, I say idiotic because it simply hasn't worked. Uh, America has lost billions of dollars as a result 
of the trade war that Trump initiated against China. Um, so it's, it's an idiotic war, but he started it. And the current administration um, uh, with the intelligence community, with the military industrial apparatus in general, seems determined uh, to, to... So how... What a, what a wonderfully convenient thing it is that the Chinese have decided to get very, very tough uh, with the Ouija's, the Muslim, uh, we, mainly Muslim. It's a predominantly, I think, a 90% um, uh, Muslim uh, part of uh, China. It's always been part of China, nearly, I mean, you know, back, back before the 9th century, but uh, somewhere um, towards the 10th century, um, a group, uh, an army, a Seljuk uh, a Turkish uh, army somehow got lost as it was, I think, fleeing uh, the Persians, uh, got lost in this part of China and stayed there. Uh, and that, so that, that's, uh, that's the beginning um, of this tragic, of this tragic history. Um, so, but so, so A, it's the convenience of it. It just begins to smell already. Mm -hmm. Because two, does it really make sense? Okay, I, I know that you know we, we we're inclined to think that the Chinese have done one or two, or three, um, uh, rather awful things in their history, particularly under under Mao. And my you know, assumption they, would yeah, be that ahead. they're no different to the states. I mean, well, they're that, human, that, right? Yeah, my my presumption as well. Uh, so the, now, there's the, the third consideration. Well, is it possible? That they they have taken uh, measures which seem pretty disreputable to us, um, but um, they had reason to be uh, to be concerned. Y yes, well, the answer to that is yes. There definitely is a history of extremist jihadist terrorism uh, in Xinjiang, and and when, wherever you have that phenomenon, you can be pretty damn sure because you know it happens elsewhere, as in Syria, for example. We've just been talking about Syria. Um, you can be pretty damn sure that therefore Western intelligence agencies will be messing about trying to make things worse for China because what what the West wants is like it wants in Russia is to see the complete dismemberment of China. That's never going to happen. But it's what the West salivates about um, in, 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 in its sleep. And um, so there, there will, you, could, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it in my mind. I've been monitoring these kind of things for too long to have the, 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 any doubt at all that where there's trouble for China, the West will be there trying to make it worse. Hmm. And so, uh, so therefore, if I am in Beijing and I do have a responsibility uh, for the uh, for the for the is extreme jihadist problem uh, in uh, Xinjiang, it is not totally unlikely that I could be tempted. Uh, to take some rather dire methods to try and make sure that uh, this doesn't spread. But we're talking about a population of 12 million. 12 million people in a state. Xinjiang has a population of 25 million people. And we're talking about a Muslim population of 12 million. Um, so you know, what, what sensible person is truly going to want to create a simulacrum of the um, of the Nazi death camps. Personally, I don't buy it, but of course, all of these things at the end are matters of evidence. They're empirical questions. All right. So, what about some of the empirical evidence 
um, that we have so far. Well, some of it is total border dash. Uh, so, for example, uh, and there was a very, there been at least a couple of very good articles in, um, 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 I think the author of one of them was Aaron uh, Maté. I'm trying to remember the name of the site. You probably know the one that I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for. No, no, sorry. A, a, a critical uh, crowdfunded uh, in, investigative journalism site. Uh, but anyway, um, he, he, uh, he, uh, they, they demonstrate that the, the, the sources of information about the scandal of Xinjiang are very small, are very narrow, and highly, highly partisan. Uh, there's one guy in particular who is credited with pretty much for the whole story about how supposedly uh, um, Beijing is trying um, uh, to force a cut in the Uyghur birth rate. Mm -hmm. Is trying to reduce the Uyghur. This is a big part of the of the whole Uyghur story, um, how they, the, Ch the Chinese are frightened of this Muslim population and they're trying to stop Uyghur women having children. Okay. Does it make any sense? Absolutely not. It makes, it makes no sense whatsoever, ex unless you're just listening uh, to the idiot who is spreading the story and being, t and being taken seriously by people who should know better and probably by people who do know better, but for whom the narrative is more important than the truth. Why is it so stupid? Because the, the, the Muslim population in Xinjiang increased threefold since the beginning or the, since, since the late 20th century and today. Mm -hmm. It's exploded until quite recently, until about 2010 to 2012. When did the when did this idea of uh, camps first uh, arise? Is this a when when was the first uh, this first appearing in the news? Yeah, I think I do. I, right at this moment, I I can't dredge that the right information up chain. I'm sorry about that. Mm -hmm. I think in my article I do have it, and um, I I'll, I'll send you the article. Hopefully, mm -hmm. hopefully I do have reference to when these these stories began. Uh, to appear, but um, it's. I think it, I'm going to say around uh, 2011 is when this narrative begins to gain uh, some some traction, in the wake of some really awful terrorist instant, uh, instances created by jihadists. There was one terrible thing. Uh, uh, I remember I was actually in. Hong Kong at the time teaching for the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong and um, this horrible story um, in Kunming, a different, uh, a I think it's a neighboring province of uh, Xinjiang. And um, uh, some, they, they turned out to be uh, Uyghurs, extremist uh, Muslim Uyghurs. Uh, and they just went on to the, the main, the platforms of uh, the main railway station in Kunming very beautiful area, by the way, China. Uh, and um, with knives, just stabbed dozens mm -hmm. of totally innocent men, women, and children. Just horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, and uh, there are the, uh, other things of that kind. You know? So it, it's it, as 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 the terrorist instant instances begin to accumulate, so do the stories about um, about suppre suppression. 
state suppression of, of them. But, the, but the, just talking about the birth very, very quickly, another part of the big story about Xinjiang is that um, uh, more and more Han Chinese from other parts of China, Han, the, the Han mm-hmm. is so the, main the, domin- population. the dominant ethnicity of China, more and more Hans have been moving into Xinjiang because um, pro- um, it's, it has been a growing area of prosperity. It, it, it was poor and it still is poor, but it has become much, much, much more prosperous uh, than it used to be, largely because of a big expansion in the cotton industry and a mechanization of, of the cotton uh, the cotton industry. Uh, so there wasn't sufficient labor. Uh, so they, they, a lot of these uh, Han Chinese were imported uh, or came of their own volition. There may have been a mixture of both. I don't, I'm, I can't, I'm not sure about that. Um, and... Uh, uh, relations between the uh, between the Uyghurs and the Han have uh, de- deteriorated um, uh, a- 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 as a- as a result, but there has been a decline in the birth rate of both the Han Chinese and the Uyghur population in recent years. Why might that be? Because actually, the the de- the decline in the birth rate in Xinjiang is much greater by a percentage point, uh, much greater uh, for the Han than for the Uyghurs. Um, Why might that be? Well, because China has invested a huge amount more money than it used to in health Mm -hmm. services and um, um, birth control health. Mm -hmm. Family Um, planning, this sort of thing. All of that, all of that. And all... It, all ethnicities have taken advantage of this vast improvement in healthcare in Xinjiang. Is there also so the, an uptick in education and this yes, sort of thing as well? Okay. Ex- 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 exactly. So you've got greater prosperity, you've got greater healthcare, you've got much better education, you've got much better employment opportunities. What do the Western media want you to know? They want you to know that... Beijing has established not death camps because actually no one is actually claiming that. They are claiming mistreatment. They are, de- they are claiming forcible detention. Sometimes they are claiming rape and such things. But actually, no, they're not, they're not claiming vast loss of life. But so, you would, but sorry, sorry, just very quickly, but you would need to show vast loss of life if you were to show that Beijing seriously had a depopulation policy for the Muslim population of Western China. And that is very obviously not happening. And I don't think much of the rest of the narrative is happening either because of the very scarce scarcity of credible sources. Nearly all the sources are highly highly partisan they're highly anti-chinese and very right-wing so who benefits from these sort of narratives so you said the long-term goal is to break apart china or to in the case of uh, ukraine you want to have access to the markets there but so in this case uh, in the in the short term who is benefiting benefiting most from this sort of narrative um Motivations. I, I think I think you kind of said it, uh, Shane. I think the principal motivation is to keep or, or to try to weaken 
the major uh, sources of competition uh, to the United States. China, most obviously, uh, is the single greatest uh, competitor uh, against uh, United States uh, hegemony uh, over the world. I think Russia is actually a relatively weak uh, competitor. All Russia has got is a lot of territory, a lot of mineral wealth that is pretty much untapped. I mean, Russia is deeply, deeply underdeveloped. Um, uh, and Russia, um, yeah, is basically dependent on uh, fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuel revenues. R Russia is in a very disturbing place. You know, the, the, Russia has got real problems. Um, but Russia has nukes. Russia has nukes. And also, Russia has got hypersonic nukes. And you would worry, if you were a strategist somewhere in the Pentagon, you might worry that, well, they got, they got nukes. They got these nukes and they, and they got these hypersonic nukes. They've tested them. They seem to work. Um, and we don't. So if uh, Russia, maybe in alliance with China, was to seize its moment, carpe diem, and to say, well, this is our last chance to take um, the overweening empire down. We better use it because they're going to catch up. It'll take a year, take 18 months, maybe two years at the most. If I was a strategist in the Pentagon, I would, that would really keep me awake at night. Have we reached the point? Have we beat the drums for war so incessantly, so convincingly? Have we stirred up our populations to fever, to a fever pitch of hate and distrust? Um, that if they wanted to, they could use nukes against us. Well, if we don't act now, they will do it. So I would worry. But there don't seem to be many people in the Pentagon that really worry about anything. That's, that, and that, that does disturb me. But I think I've, I've rather gone off the point. So <laughs> please, Shane, drag me back to the main point here. So the main point, so yeah. I, I wanted to, well, actually, let, let's go on to another point, which is sort of closely related. You know, uh, I one thing that sort of is confusing to me is most people don't seem to be thinking that often about Russia and China. I mean, in the media today, what seems to be more on people's minds are things like social justice. So you see BLM and, and, and you see um, a lot of talking about, uh, you know, um, transgender bathrooms, things like this. And so the, the picture you're painting is that uh, the, the power landscape hasn't changed that much. Traditional groups are still in control. Um, but in my mind, there's this question I have, which is, you know, there are these new groups like uh, Facebook and and um, and YouTube and, and these social media giants, and they make profit in a very different way to uh, the CIA or, or American governments, right? So they they make money off outrage, they make money off off clicks and this sort of thing, and so they may push a narrative. For no directed reason, other than that, it makes them money, and and so to me, it, I find it difficult to tease apart. Uh, you know, is it true that uh, these stories are put in place by some sort of monolithic th force, or is it just that um, 
you know, we like we we get outraged when we hear about uh, China taking over the, the South China Sea. Or um, do you have some way of, of putting a metric on on uh, sort of directed uh, intervention and sort of just this this money making machine that is outrage? Yeah, it's, it's a very good point that that you make. I, th- uh, I think about. Um, how uh, the the business model uh, of organizations like um, Facebook and and uh, and Twitter and and the like it it it, de- it depends on traffic, uh, and it it depends on traffic a because uh, the more people who use your uh, information platform, then uh, the more you can charge advertisers for also coming on board uh, your platform. But even more, as we've learned since uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal of uh, 2000 and uh, I guess 2017 was the year that it broke. Um, But um, these organizations make uh, even more money from their sale of of metadata to anyone who can use metadata, usually for uh, advertising purposes or uh, other forms of promotion and and marketing, but also probably for political reasons as well. So, um, so that the business model of these organizations uh, is very troubling. And, uh, you could also say that therefore, if there's any, anything that they can do that would generate more traffic, maybe for example, by introducing algorithms that, uh, somehow encourage or push further, uh, or promote further um stories that for example that generate outrage um then that that makes <clears throat> that makes excellent uh um business sense uh, to 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 these organizations and um i i i don't want to uh, decry that i think it's probably it's, it's likely it's true um but of course there are different outrages and this this is where it gets a little bit more sinister because there are some outrages that create much, much more noise than, other, than others, even though when you look at the outrages or the causes of outrage, you see that they, they, they don't seem that different uh, to one another. Uh, you know, you got the outrage of, um, let's, uh, I, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with suitably comparable examples. I may, I may fail abysmally uh, to, uh, to do this. Um, but we can get outraged, uh, for, as I, just, I actually did say it a little while ago, we can get outraged about the idea that, um, that Bashar Assad, <clears throat> uh, works with, uh, with, with the Russians, um, to hit, um, uh, jihadist, uh, and other rebel groups, uh, in Syria and that he, he, he imprisons people, he tortures people, uh, he, he hits hospitals. So we, we hear a lot about those kind of outrages. Um, but only for a few days are we invited to feel outrage about, uh, well, Israel, just the last few days has been bombing hospitals, has been bombing clinics, it's been killing children, uh, without any terribly good reason. Um, because it's, uh, Military resources are incomparably greater than the pathetic little rockets that uh, Hamas buys in from Iran and from other sources that barely do any damage and to date have killed, I think, I'm, and I'm sorry to say this, and I don't want anyone to be killed, but um, have killed 20 Israelis as against the 230 or more uh, Palestinians who have been killed. In the- no, we, we, we I, the, the, 
yeah, we'll, we'll be feeling outraged about that for a day or so, but it'll disappear. Why do I know that? Because that's how it always goes. That's how it's always happened. No one will be obliged to actually take meaningful action to stop Israel subjugating uh, the Palestinians in the, the Gaza Strip and, uh, and on the West Bank. As I say, how do I know that? Because we've been... We've been through this cycle several times mm. before in the last two decades. So we know how it works. So uh, but, being, uh, but, being but, cynical... But, to, yeah, sorry. It, is, is, is there, um, does that teach us a lesson that we should never apologize? Because, you know, if you apologize rather than waiting for the next news cycle to come across, then you, you're really in trouble. Whereas if you just wait for the next outrage... You can get away with anything, it seems. Yeah, yeah. No, if if you're a propagandist, uh, absolutely, don't worry about apologising. Um, if you're a propagandist, all you're mainly concerned about is does the change that you are being paid to bring about does the change happen? If it happens, end of story. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Let's go back. This is. Uh, an ancient, relatively, an ancient example, but it's one I still often use in my classes because it's so well documented. Um, it's the uh, pretext for war that was used by the United States way back in 1990 uh, as we were beginning to drum up international support um, to counter uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of uh, Kuwait. Um, we couldn't do it uh, because no one give, gave a damn no one knew anything about Iraq, couldn't care less. They knew even less about Kuwait and cared even less about Kuwait. Um, why should we go to war with Saddam Hussein over Kuwait? No one gave a shit. So we had to get us a bit smarter in our propaganda. And we employed, because public relations agencies, you remember Edward Bernays came up with the term public relations um, as a alternative to propaganda back in the 1920s. Um, We hired Hill and Knowlton. I say we, I'm talking about. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I'm talking about, um, well, uh, formally, I'm talking about an organization that called itself, I think it was the Friends of American Arab Friends of Kuwait, or some such name as that. Um, They got the funding and they paid out the money, I suppose, uh, to Hill and Knowlton. Um, but the funding was really coming in from other sources. And uh, the story was these wicked, wicked Iraqi soldiers. What, what, what's the first thing that they do when they hit Kuwait City? Do, do, do they go and have a drink? Um, do they go to the local um, uh, pleasure house? Do they just sleep? No, 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 no. The first thing they do, they rush to the hospitals, look for incubators, pull babies out of the incubators and leave the babies on the stone cold floor to die. That's the story. And that is the story that Hill and Knowlton swung by, first of all, uh, a congressional investigation committee and the so-called testimony coached uh, by the daughter, no one knew at the time, by the daughter of the uh, 
Kuwaiti ambassador, part of the Kuwaiti royal family, the Kuwaiti ambassador to the uh, to the United States. She's the only living person who made the claim that she personally had seen this happen. She wasn't even in Kuwait City at the time. There's no evidence she was actually there. But that's the claim that she made. And it was repeated ad nauseum. Every political speech that uh, George Bush Sr. made to the American people at that time made a reference to the putting of the babies out of the incubators. It's brilliant atrocity propaganda. It's truly brilliant, but evil. Because it didn't happen. And as soon as the war is over, and no one cared even less about Kuwait, uh, than they did before, then uh, investigative uh, journalists began to realize there's no truth whatsoever to this. It's totally, totally fabricated. And um, I guess the correction always comes so it, long after and in small text and yes. the, the news story has gone along so that you don't care about this conflict anymore, that, and it, but it's had its impact. Exactly. I, I suppose that's the, the key. That's the, exactly. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, though. You would have thought, wouldn't you, that uh, once um, someone has been found out um, enough times that uh, they would then be disqualified um, from um, entry into Best Propaganda of the Year Award. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't seem to happen uh, because those voices rarely get to be heard by the mainstream media. The mainstream media didn't rush to tell the world, oops, we got it wrong, terribly sorry about that. And even when it does happen, like after the Iraqi war, so the pretext for war against Iraq, the pretext for the invasion of Iraq back in 2003 was... Saddam Hussein has got weapons of mass destruction. Oh, what kind of what kind of weapons would those be? Well, they, people didn't even bother to ask that very fundamental question. Are we talking about nuclear weapons? Are we talking about? It, it didn't really matter. But the, you know, the fact that he was claimed to have weapons of mass destruction was enough. And after the war is over, mm -hmm. and everyone's dead. Well, everyone is dead. We've achieved, according to Bush Jr. Apparently, mission is accomplished. And that itself was another big, gigantic uh, propaganda hoax, wasn't it? But um, apparently, mission is accomplished. And uh, should it matter anymore? Well, actually, very, very rarely. This very rarely happens. But on this occasion, the lie was so big, the lie crumbled so catastrophically once U.S. troops were actually in um, Baghdad and in Iraq, that the New York Times and the Washington Post and one or two other big media felt they had to come to the public and say, oh, dreadfully sorry, dreadfully sorry. But you know, you know, we were listening to the White House, we were listening to the Pentagon, and they were telling us for sure that there were these weapons of mass destruction. And of course, you know, we believe authoritative sources and you, the reader, has the power to choose. We don't force you to believe anything that we tell you. You have the power to choose, you silly little ignorant reader. Uh, so that, so we had that one, I think, is the only exception uh, I, can, I can think of at the moment, where the mainstream media came and said, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. And then, in the case of the New York Times, within months, I think within less than six months, they were playing the same old game. 
They had said, oh, we're so sorry. We shouldn't have believed this. We should have investigated it further. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't have reported anonymous sources because that's bad, bad, bad. And journalists should never um, use anonymous sources until they really, really have to. And we're never, ever going to do this again. But yet, a few months later, there's the New York Times as it still does at least once a month on a regular, it's almost as though it's a religion that you have to do this once a month. You run some almost entirely anonymously sourced story that is totally in the interest of the foreign policy establishment that has probably been fed word by word to the New York Times by one of the intelligence agencies and never gets any correction or apology later. And on this occasion, it was a story that Iran was a nuclear threat to the rest of the world. The, almost the same story as the Iraq hoax within a few months of the Iraq hoax being totally discredited in the eyes of the world. And there, the New York Times playing the same old game. Um, so, so I yeah. guess one aspect of this is America does go through regime change. So, I mean, Colin Powell is not there anymore, right? So this might be one aspect that uh, aids in uh, forgiveness, right? The, the same people that if you go back and, and you say, oh, look, uh, George Bush did this or um, so-and-so did that, but they're no longer in power anymore. It's, it's the new faces. So I suppose this might be one aspect why, why the public is so forgiving of, uh, of the um, lies, let's say. Well, yes, I, I suppose if one was to look at this, if I was to deal with that question with the attention and care that it totally deserves, uh, I would have to do a case-by-case Analysis. I would have to select major political foreign affairs stories and and look at how these stories have evolved over time, and then I would have to invest look very look at, at how different media um, or, or in the first place I would I would have to look at um, the positions that the different political parties took on these issues, and then I would have to look at how the mainstream media or different mainstream media also played those stories over time. I think that's what it would take. But let me, because I can't, obviously I can't do that just in the space of a minute or two, I'm going to leap uh, to at least um, a likely case that would, uh, uh, that would caution, be careful, be very, very careful. So back in the Reagan years, you, you, you probably, Shane, I don't know how old you are, I'm not going to ask no, you. No, no, this, uh, this is before but, my time. <laughs> but, before your time, uh, there was a time in the 70s, you know, and it was very strange as I think about it. You know, intelligent people like you and me were actually asking ourselves the question, well, this silly old Cold War, how long is this going to go on, really? Uh, isn't, it, isn't it likely that both the United States and Russia, they're getting more industrial, uh, they got more or less the same weapons, they're, they're all human beings. Um, isn't it very likely that after a period of time, it's not going to matter very much in the, in, in the United States? We've got 
uh, pensions and we've got social security, we've got great health care. Um, we care about people. And in Russia, they got some of those same things. So we're getting a little bit more communist and Russia is getting a little bit more capitalist. Isn't it likely that ultimately the two systems will merge and they will eventually be indistinguishable? And that might have been a potential outcome, but it wasn't the outcome um, that the uh, neoconservative uh, regime uh, under Ronald Reagan and then a year, oh no, this was a year after the election of um, Margaret Thatcher in uh, in Great Britain. These two together totally bought, because they're, they're both very right-wing, not terribly intelligent uh, politicians um, who are listening far more carefully than they should uh, to um, to um, to the what was then we still we still call it the Friedmanesque school of economics uh, coming out of what was then called and still is called the Chicago School, which is all everything neoliberalism is today. Um, business cannot be should not be regulated. You can't regulate business. Our total happiness and welfare and prosperity depends on business being able to do what it damn well wants. Uh, wherever it wants, with whomever it wants. That's the only way. That's basically, you know, in a nutshell, that's neoliberalism. And that's the, that's the outlook that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan together, um, uh, represented. And the last thing they were going to do was to, uh, to be friendly, um, to, uh, to what was then, was still then, uh, Soviet Russia. But, um, there are the, the American people need to wake up to the dangers. That the American people need to understand that Russia is a real threat, um, so that our military get the the resources that they need in order to do whatever it is eventually they will need, uh, to, um, uh, so that you know that this uh, the communism will, will will collapse. And um, it was a total lie. I, the, R Russia at that time was not a, a strong and secure economy. We know that. It's very plain now, even though the CIA didn't recognize that it was already beginning to fall apart. And Gorbachev came to power and the, he was in power by the mid-1980s. And he was going to fundamentally change the system. Um, I've talked to Gorbachev personally and I've got some of his insights about that period of time. They're really, really interesting. But... Um, How was he as an individual? Let me quickly, because it is very, sure. very important. The, uh, the Republicans needed to drum up a story about the threat that Russia represented. The CIA was useless. The CIA was saying, no, we, 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 you know, we got our people there. We're monitoring it very carefully. No, we, can, we, don't, we don't see any threat. What are you talking about? There's no threat. And this wasn't good enough for the Donald, Donald Rumsfelds and the, and the Dick Cheneys who were in, who were in. The White House at this time already, hmm. and I guess Wolfowitz was hanging around in the background as well somewhere, and they were saying, "Shit, the CIA isn't doesn't want to play this game. What's the matter with them?" Hmm. I know. Let's set up our own intelligence apparatus here in the Department of Defense, and instead of just telling our intelligence operation to go out and examine the facts, no, no, we're going to tell them here are the conclusions. Now go and get the evidence. If you don't get the evidence, you're fired. 
go get the evidence. What are the conclusions? The conclusion mainly is Soviet Russia is a terrible, terrible threat to American security. Go get the evidence. That's and that's 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 it's it's as simple as that. And and of course the mainstream media, because they're paid off or because their owners already belong to the elite little club at the top, buy into it hook, line and sent, uh, sinker, and, and before you know it, we're we're back into full scale Cold War again. Mm. Can, can I ask? Uh, yeah. um, so you've you've sort of piqued my curiosity um, along one line. So, the the story you're sort of uh, um, building is that, in some sense, information is the 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 most valuable thing in the world. But on the other hand, <laughs> you just wait a week. The news the news cycles again, and that outrage is gone. That information is no longer of any relevance. So there's like. Uh, somehow this this inherent value and this cheapness to information in, in the story you're, you're selling. And so that makes me curious uh, when it comes to terrorist organizations. So this is, so, so far we've been talking about state actors. And so I want to understand when it comes to ISIS or the Taliban or, or these sorts of groups, where they 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 cause an explosion in in Paris, or they they bring down the Twin Towers, or they do some stabbing in in some region in China. What do these groups gain uh, from from that terror? What, what what is it that they are trying to pull out of a situation yeah. which is so horrible uh, yeah. locally? In the in in the international realm, there's very little information uh, that is not instantly politicized. And that's because all nations have uh, foreign policy interests. All nations care more about achievement of their interests than they do about some silly little uh, scruple um, about truth. No one cares about truth, but people care about perception. So that's the first thing to remember. Second thing, yes, there are terrorist organizations. And of course, that's uh, indisputably the case. And probably there always have been. Um, but it's become more fashionable and maybe because the empirical reality is that terrorism is now more wide, widespread uh, than it has ever been. Maybe. I, I, I'm not going to try to answer that question right now. But what, one thing that struck me, one big lesson I felt that I learned during the Algerian War, again, going back to before your time, the Algerian War, but it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. So this is with with France, or yeah, P P people forget this. So uh, the, the, we have a the, the Al Algeria, a very populous, major North African, predominantly Muslim nation, seeks mm -hmm. independence from its imperialist owner, France. France is not going to give in, not easily. So we have a terrible, terrible period, don't we, where um, the French are fighting each other over the issue of how long, what degree of horror do we need to perpetrate against the Algerians to try to keep them in line. Eventually, of course, they give. Um, and part of the reason for their concern is because the, uh, the predominant um, movement for independence in Algeria is a socialist movement. This is often forgotten. It matters. Could, could, you, put a, could you put a year on this? Sorry? Yes, uh, with the... Uh, with the um, <laughs> let's... Um, <laughs> 
Is, is this, is this the, late, this, like 98, We're talking about the, the de Gaulle years, aren't we? We're talking, so this, this is some time back. Oh, okay. So we're, 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 oh. We are going back quite a ways in time. We're going back to 1970s. Oh, okay. So this is further than that. So I I was wondering if this was related to the bombings in Paris sort of in the 95. No, that's a little bit later. But we do have numerous uh, terrorist instances caused by uh, Algerian independence fighters. Uh, And first of all, I want to explain why the French were so reluctant to do what surely in their heart of hearts knew was the right thing to do to make peace with Algeria on fraternal, on a fraternal mm-hmm. basis so as to maintain good brotherly relations. That's, that was a sensible thing to do. Britain was doing it. It wasn't as though there wasn't a model for doing this. We'd already given up India, the Brits, I mean. Um, but no, the, the French were worried about socialism. That's... but. So when eventually Algeria becomes independent, it's fiercely socialist and it's also favorable. It's very Muslim and there are Islamic groups within the political sphere who wield considerable influence. Ultimately, and now you're asking me about years, I'm going to say it sometime in the 1980s, and this is we're getting to the lesson I really wanted to draw. Ultimately, we have free and open elections. Big but guarded applause by the lovers of freedom and democracy, like the United States and Great Britain and France. Oh, democracy in action. Who wins the election? The extremist Islamic party. Ah, horror, horror, horror. Oh my God. We can't. We can't allow this to happen. We, we deliberately and directly go back to the, to the preceding political establishment and say, you cannot recognize this election as legitimate. We will fight you tooth and nail if you dare call these elections legitimate. So the elections are declared illegitimate. Of course, the Islamic party now becomes immensely more popular than it has ever been. And the most horrible, until ISIS came along, you could not imagine the horror that unfolded across Algeria as village after village after village is raped, terrorized, murdered, burnt to the ground as one faction fights another. Uh, and in all of this, subsequent events reveal some of what was really going on on the ground. You have powerful factions in Algiers related to the Algerian army and intelligence services who are playing their own little games in, this, in the midst of this horrible war. For not just for sectional reasons, but sometimes just for their own personal gain. The seizure of land, for example, by top-ranking military. In these wars, it can be, here's my point, in these wars it can be incredibly different, difficult I mean, to determine whose interest is really at play here. It's very difficult to see. And that's how mm-hmm. Syria seemed for the first few years. People couldn't make head or tail of it. 
they didn't under they couldn't see as they later did see because it was palpably obvious ultimately that Qatar was pouring money into the Muslim Brotherhood, which was behind a good part of the um, rebel movement. Certainly, once um, the certainly once the um, the socialists were killed off, or certainly once the the pure Democrats were killed off, and they, they were killed off pretty quickly. So the Muslim Brotherhood, as as it always does in Syria, see that the Muslim Brotherhood had already staged a horrible revolt against Bashar Assad's father. Um, Naf um, can't remember his first name at the moment. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, in, uh, in, in, in the 1980s, they, they killed, they assassinated, uh, police, they assassinated soldiers. Um, they, they were as provocative as it is possible to be against mm -hmm. the, uh, the socialist, uh, regime, Assad, uh, regime. A particular kind of socialism, of course, which is nationalist and which, uh, which stands for Arab nationalism. Standard socialism and Arab nationalism and uh, sovereignty, um, and the Muslim Brotherhood didn't. The Muslim Brotherhood doesn't respect any of those things, mm. and so I suppose so, they were also the organisation that was most ready to take advantage of a of a coup or a, here's the point a, a messy situation. The, 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 these are the guys who take power in Algeria and the West. Mm -hmm. Gets rid of these are the these are the guys who actually for a few months take power in Egypt. Mm -hmm. They're shoved out, replaced by by the Egyptian military again. Um, see, the the, the narrative I've I've written about this in relation to the esteemed uh, Sunday Times journalist uh, Marie Colvin. So she, amongst many of her colleagues, was telling this simple little story about pure Democrats, democracy lovers. Rising up against Bashar Assad and his regime, so that Syria could be like a West European democratic mm -hmm. sovereign nation, it's, it's total rubbish. It's a total misunderstanding and misreading of the Arab world in general and of Arab so can politics I, can in can general. Can I stop you to yes. ask a question very yeah, quickly? Yeah. So, so you, you said. I, I might have misheard you. There, there was this, uh, say, socialist group uh, that was originally uh, on the ground, and they were killed off very quickly. But that's the, the narrative that continues the, 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 in the West. There, there are competing it's, narratives, and uh, all I can—I uh, have a book manuscript. Uh, the editors are incredibly skittish about anything. They're British editors, so they're even more skittish um, about anything to do with Syria at the moment because the Foreign and Commonwealth Office has a particular narrative it wants everybody to tell about Syria. I'm not saying I know what the narrative is, but I do know what some of the narratives are, and I do know that they uh, conflict, and I do know that the empirical evidence for the different narratives conflicts as well. Can truth conflict with itself? I don't know, but evidence can, and that's the nearest we can hope to get when we're in the truth business. So you've got quite strong sources that will tell you, yes, this is uh, the uh, the uprising in Syria in 2011 is yet another outbreak of the um, of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. But so how does this tie back to terrorist uh, actions? Because terrorism feeds on funds. 
you can't wage war without funds. And you rarely wage war successfully unless your funders have a lot of money. So that's why most of the groups, the militia in Syria, were funded either by Qatar or by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and Qatar had different ideas as to which were the better jihadists to fund. Qatar went for the Muslim Brotherhood. Saudi Arabia, of course, went for kind of more Wahhabist groups that were somewhat more similar to ISIS, as it turned out. Um, uh, you've got Western intelligence, so you've got the CIA running weapons from the failed state of Libya, which the CIA and NATO helped to destroy the year before. Now you've got the whole country as a wash uh, with uh, sophisticated weaponry that um, that is, that are leaked, that are sorry disseminated up into Turkey, because Turkey is also funding um, uh, jihadist militia uh, in uh, in northern in northern Syria, and Turkey is keeping its border open for the flow of both weapons and of personnel to the, the jihadist movements in Syria and also allowing jihadists back into Syria to establish their political bases to for purposes of rest and uh, and recuperation the other another big player has changed its tune just recently but was the uh, United Arab uh, Emirates um, and as I said I, I mentioned the CIA but you've also got Britain of course you got Britain big time. Britain is behind, for example, the White Helmets. You got the ex-military um, uh, British ex-military character Le Mesurier, who is working with a so-called non-government organization called ARC, which is funded by the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and he sets up the White Helmets. And the White Helmet. These are the groups that are going. I thought these were medical groups that are going in and pulling people out of buildings. Well, and uh, the, this is what they're sold. At. That's how. That's how they. That's how they are sold. And there's no reason to believe that some of the time they are not doing that. But the problem is they seem to operate only in jihadist-controlled areas, and they seem to do so not just with the tolerance of the jihadist groups, but also in interaction with the jihadists. So you've got members of jihadist militia working with the White Helmets, and you've got White Helmets who seem to move across quite easily into the militia groups. And also the White Helmets plays a part in providing so-called evidence and witnesses to uh, investigations into alleged um, chemical weapons attacks. And unfortunately, the the, some of the stories get way more sinister than anything that I've cared to mention um, up until this point in the conversation. Um, there's, don't take my word for it. I, I can certainly send you separately um, uh, so, uh, sources of information that you can look to, to see where these narratives are coming from, because that's what's important in the first instance. You're trying to assess what weight should you give to these competing narratives? That's your task. I, I can't do that for you. Uh, I've done it for myself, uh, but with varying degrees of conclusiveness or inconclusiveness. All I can say is, that just as I said with the Uyghurs, but moving in the opposite direction, there are real grounds for concern. So, so I, I want to get back to the question. That there's, there's still aspects of uh, this question that I don't understand. So, so that is... Okay, so so ISIS is doing propaganda when it 
lines up 30 people in orange jumpsuit and it starts uh, slicing necks and doing you know horrible other things i, I so i, I want to understand do, do do these activities have direct impact on the flow of money so for example I'm just going to oh, throw yes. out ideas. So, yes. So, 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 for example, uh, if money is flowing towards yes. uh, terrorist groups, are there choices on which terrorist group to back I, based on yes. trust? Like, what, 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 exactly. what is the yeah, no, we, what is the monetary no, gain directly there's, there's from? No, there's, there's no, there's no doubt about this. We, we got plenty of there's plenty of evidence from the ground. Uh, uh, people directly involved who say, well, you know, we weren't getting enough funding from this source. We weren't getting enough weapons. We're being slaughtered, for Christ's sake. Someone help us. We went over there. They had better resources. They were going to give us greater autonomy to do what we think is necessary on the ground. We went with them. This is a more jihadist group, so we, you know, we, we overnight we got more religious because they, you know, we had to demonstrate our pro-Islamist credentials even more convincingly. Uh, so as to merit, to deserve this better uh, source of money. Uh, so, so yes, money plays all kinds of, all kinds of, and I suppose roles. recruits as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, I, I want to pull the conversation all the way back to uh, back uh, maybe an hour ago um, when we we're talking about distraction and. I want to just ask a few questions about uh, the Trump campaign and, and uh, Trump in office. Right. So one thing that was characteristic of his presidency was that there was just continuous outrage. Every week there was a new story. I, I don't know whether that was always generated by him or, or his opposition and, and the media. But one thing I want to understand is, was this to some extent intentional uh, on the part of his office so that they could move in policy uh, in the background while everyone was looking at Melania wearing something or him throwing goldfish food into the pond in the wrong way or whatever the the, the moment was that uh, got people's attention. Yeah, um, yeah no, that's, that's a great question. Uh, because I've had privileged access uh, to a work that I hugely admire, and strongly recommended to anyone who is interested in these issues, but it's not published yet. I don't know why. I worry about the why. But it's uh, it's a work by the celebrated uh, expert on Russia, um, Richard Sakwa, about Russiagate. And um, he's certainly done more than enough to convince or to raise very grave doubts in my mind about the conduct of both the Mueller uh, report, but before the Mueller report, the conduct of the FBI investigation into Russiagate, which was called the um, uh, Crossfire, the Crossfire mm -hmm. investigation that was initiated by FBI Director James Comey uh, somewhere uh, in the uh, during 2016. Now, if I follow the Sakwa uh, logic, or here's my interpretation, because uh, Sakwa is is very nuanced in how he uses the evidence that he accesses. But my interpretation of the evidence uh, that he presents is that um, by January 2017, James Comey, uh, if, he, if he had an IQ above 10, 
knew that Russiagate was a hoax. But he kept it going anyway. He kept Crossfire going for a few months more. He got his buddy, a prior, a, pr a prior director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, also part of the FBI gang, gets him appointed as the uh, head of the um, of the inquiry, the the, the so-called Mueller inquiry. And you would have thought, wouldn't you, if we're talking about the possibility that an act active president of the United States may actually be a Russian um, agent answerable to Putin, no less. You would have thought, wouldn't you, that under those circumstances, you would pull out the stops to get to the truth as you would do whatever it took, because someone like that can only do uh, American national security the greatest possible harm. So you have to act with the utmost speed. But of course that doesn't happen. The Mueller report drags on and on and on and on to, I hope I'm remembering correctly, 2019, almost into the next election round. I so, guess just before coronavirus kicks off, right? Yes. So the, the implication therefore being did Comey and Mueller, knowing that there's no there there in Russiagate, the best that Mueller actually can do, really, apart from indicting some Russians who, to his great surprise and bewilderment, some of them actually decide to come to the United States and defend themselves successfully against the charges. So much so that uh, ultimately... Um, I think it's the uh, Department of Defense uh, says to those who are pushing uh, these stories about uh, the internet, the internet um, press agency and its associated businesses in Russia. It actually says, stop it. Stop it. There's no evidence. So you've got to presume for that and for many, many, many other reasons that Comey and Mueller pushed it for as long as they could to make sure that the mainstream media would have some silly little scandal to break with uh, next weekend to keep the mm -hmm. to keep the punters flocking um, but so was that was that um, uh, okay so I, I, I'm, I'm I want to get a picture of now which side is playing here so was 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 the idea here to paralyze uh, the president's office so that, that the president's office has to focus on uh, defending itself and then wasn't able to be active in yeah. in, in various ways right. or, um, was that the main right. intention or was it the main intention yeah. to uh, generate scandal in yeah. in the media uh, in your, so, so, uh, in your right. uh, so far Shane um, believe it or not so far I've really tried very hard to remain empirically based. I've tried as hard as I'm capable of, although, you know, sometimes I have my moments of weaknesses or my passions take over, but I do try very hard not to say things that I've, I'm pretty sure I can support empirically. So I'm pushing you in a direction now, maybe that you don't yeah. want to. <laughs> no, no, now we're just moving into a broad area of speculation. 
um, or it is for me at least, uh, is a very, very good question. Am I capable of answering it? Why? Why did, uh, did the FBI, why did Mueller, why did the Democratic Party not, not let up? Why did they not let up in all this time? Um, I think it's because, as, as I said before, I see the FBI and the military intelligence apparatus as a whole being much more in the pocket of the Democratic Party than in the Republican Party. That's odd, it's ironic, it's strange, it's curious, but that's how I believe it is. Um, and uh, so here we had a lineup. We had FBI, Democratic Party, they hate Trump, they hate everything, not not for the reasons that you or I might hate Trump. I might hate Trump because he's so bloody stupid on the things that most matter. The things that most matter to human beings, climate change. The things that most matter to, to human beings, poverty, gross inequalities of wealth and the abuses that follow from that. The things that matter to most people are stupid, stupid wars. But no, that's not what the Democratic Party is concerned about. The Democratic Party has got nothing to say on climate change in these years when it comes to being critical of Trump. The Democratic Party has got nothing to say about inequalities of wealth or even, you know, I look at a more local scandal we have here. Homelessness in Los Angeles. Thousands upon thousands of people living on the streets. It's shameful. It's up, it's, there are no words for it. So why doesn't the Democratic Party zero in on abuses of that scale and of that intensity. No, all they want to talk about is Russiagate. Even though, mm. as time goes on, the evidence gets slimmer and slimmer and more and more inconsequential. Even though, supposedly, supposedly, we're talking about a president who is in the pocket of Vladimir Putin. A president who does everything he can to show that he's not pro-Putin, uh, that he's anti-Russia, and he can be as anti-Russian as the next guy when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to imposing uh, needless uh, sanctions on Russian politicians or Russian companies. He can be as anti-Russian as they come when it comes to destroying uh, international treaties on nuclear weapons that have kept our generation from uh, total slaughter up until uh, up until today no no democratic party's got nothing to say about those things but so okay that's on the side of the democratic party but so on the side of the republican party or or, or uh, trump's party um when so th these scandals that were that uh, were often the media um that were caused by trump or at least were highlighted um that trump had done in your view, were any of these orchestrated on behalf of Trump uh, in an effort to distract from things that were going on in his own office? Oh, as opposed mm. as opposed to this uh, RussiaGate scandal, I'm talking I'm talking more uh, small scale things like um, there are so many of them to to mention. But so the the smaller uh, scandals that happened week on week. Um. Yes, I, I haven't uh, looked. Uh, I, I'm, I'm aware of that kind of constant uh, succession. I, I think your thinking is, 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 is quite sensible. The, these could have been uh, politically uh, motivated attempts to um, uh, 
to 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 endorse Trump amongst his supporters and to try to take some of the political edge away from uh, the Democrats' uh, Russiagate advantage. So uh, an example of that is uh, Ukraine Gate. So um, the Trump party hits back at the Democrats, uh, not unreasonably, by the way, uh, by uh, by saying that, uh, well, you know, for everything that you say um, makes, you know, makes it look as though Trump is close to Russia, it looks as though actually... The, uh, the Democratic Party and Joe Biden is way closer to Ukraine than Trump was ever close to Russia. Okay, well, th th that's a whole nother... And you've got, you got, you got this interesting issue, actually. V this is very remarkable. Paul Manafort, one of the few people who actually suffered as a result, one of the only Americans, I think, who actually suffered significantly, one or two people um, suffered far less punitive damage, but uh, Paul Manafort uh, you know, spent some years in jail and uh, lost a great deal of money as a result of uh, Mueller. And, you know, and Mueller claimed, and his, his detractors claimed that Paul Manafort, he was pro-Russian, and therefore he has to be guilty in some way in this Russiagate, in this Russiagate narrative. The very interesting thing about Paul Manafort, and I'm not excusing any of the financial shenanigans um, uh, that he may or may not have uh, gotten up to. Um, but the interesting thing about Paul Manafort, yes, he actually did work because he's, a, he's basically a publicist. He did work and he's, a, he's, a, he's, an, he's an election meddler, if you will. Um, he's the kind of guy that you go to for advice about how to win an election. So he, he is an advisor uh, to the party of regions in Ukraine and an advisor to Yanukovych. What is one of the most important policies that Yanukovych, sorry, that um, Paul Manafort, the supposed anti-Russian, what was one of the most important policies that Paul Manafort was pushing to Yanukovych? Here it is. You got to swing Ukraine back to Europe. Or well, not that it was ever in Europe, but you got to swing it to Europe. And how are you going to, you're going to, you're going to sign the agreement with the European Union, and that would also set you one on the way to becoming a full-scale member of uh, NATO. That was the game that Paul Manafort was playing with Yanukovych. But Yanukovych, for reasons that we don't entirely understand, changes his mind at, at the last moment. Uh, Yanukovych, by the way, had never been particularly pro-Russian. He wasn't particularly pro. Putin doesn't, didn't even like Man, uh, didn't even like Yanukovych uh, that much. I think the reason that Yanukovych finally changed his mind and didn't accept the advice that he was getting from Paul Manafort on the on behalf of U.S. finance was um, because the Russians, who are actually incredibly intelligent sometimes, gave him a better deal, mm. and he realized, she mm -hmm. if I sign up with Europe." There are all kinds of conditions that are coming with this, and Russia is not asking me for anything different to what is already the case. I'll stick with Russia for the time being. I think that was quite a smart move, but not smart enough. <laughs> Otherwise, I guess he would still be there. But anyway, back, back, back to your question. Yes, of course, there are all kinds of games being played all of the time by both of our uh, political parties, and there's a lot of mud uh, to throw around. Um, but um, I think Russiagate is all mud. Um, uh, I think Ukraine Gate, there's some mud. And I'm also inclined to think 
um, there is also some truth as well, because the ties between the Democrats and Ukraine are pretty damn strong. And also, there are actually some interesting ties between the Democrats and Russia as well, or certain Russian oligarchs. You'd always find a Russian oligarch who's going, or a Ukrainian oligarch who's going to support something. If you're looking for money, you don't stop at borders. You take money from any oligarch, wherever they are. Uh, if they're offering you money, you don't necessarily accept it at the end of the day if you're careful. But now we, you know, uh, the United States has abandoned any real pretense of, of regulating fi of uh, election finance. We've got one or two rules that kind of look sensible on, on paper. But basically, it's anything goes. You can take money from anywhere, through any channel, any country, any country. It doesn't matter. You'll never really be found out for sure. That's the election system. This is supposedly democracy at work. And of course, a number of other countries have realized that's not democracy. Uh, that doesn't make any sense at all uh, in, in any theory of democracy that's ever been heard on, on the planet up until this date in time. And um, those countries are drawing their own conclusions about the supposed attractiveness of Western democracy. So on the on the topic of democracy, so obviously, if everyone agrees, it's very easy to have a democracy. Um, well, no, no, not 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 so easy. I, I just read it. The wonderful book. I actually have it here on my desk uh, by John Gasvinian, America and Iran, and he tells the story early on in this beautiful narrative. Strongly recommended, by the way. Um, he, he is an American Iranian. Um, he tells the forgotten story about the first uh, democratic system uh, that appeared in Iran. Um, uh, the, the, the first uh, parliament was set up under the kind of guardianship of the, um, of the Shah uh, in, I believe it's 1905. But by the time we got, we get to about uh, 1911. And we have, I think it's either the second or the third Parliament. The, the, the Shah is now just a young kid who uh, doesn't have any real power. The country is being invaded by Russia from the north, uh, by Britain uh, from the south. Uh, the parliament are desperate for help. And they cry out to the United States, oh, please, please, America, you understand democracy. You love democracy. You love Democrats. Please come and help us. Please, please, please. Uh, Washington uh, looks at the uh, at the letter that it gets from the head of the parliament, and and, and they, they just laugh. They just laugh. And that and that. So you know, that, that, this is that's part of this incredibly tragic narrative of Iran, the way in which uh, the United States and Britain overthrew a democratically elected regime uh, in 1953. And uh, then, of course, they mess about in the 1979 um, overthrow of the Shah by uh, Khomeini. Uh, and if anything, do their best to make sure that, well, if we have to live with this revolution, it bloody well better not be a socialist revolution. So better to have a religious nutter uh, than socialists. And now, of course, John Gasvinian tells us, oh, yeah, and there was that moment in 1911 when America, democratic America, could have stepped in and told Russia and told Britain where to get off. But they didn't. They even 
laughed at the request from this silly little country, not so little, of course, this silly little Muslim country from far, far away that we actually can't find on any of our most proximate maps. So, 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 so again, you... the, the nature of Western democracy, it's, there's, democracy has got very little to do with it. It's all about the games that we play to secure the perception by the majority of the people that somehow we are legitimate. We have a legitimate right to the wealth that we have. Most of us are millionaires. To the, to the wealth that we have, the games that we play overseas, uh, the friends that we make amongst the most dreadful dictators, and uh, everything we do to keep the American worker, man or woman, in his and her place. And that place isn't a very good place, and it's gotten worse and worse since the 1950s and 1960s, because in those years we were still trying to reward people for their support, uh, for giving their lives in World War II. So they deserved a few peanuts. But since then, people have forgotten about World War II. So now we just screw them. We just screw so, them in the name of democracy. So ca can you have a democracy with the level of misinformation, disinformation that's currently it's very, in the media? It's, it's very, very difficult. But the, but the, but, but the disinformation starts with the, in the language of hypocrisy. So... Everything that is said in, author in authoritative circles about anything to do with foreign policy is steeped in the most odious, vomit-making hypocrisy. So anything that Biden has to say about the current crisis in Israel is steeped in the, in the, in the, um, in the hypocritical presumption that, oh, these are two fairly equal groups. They're having this silly little squabble out there in the silly old Middle East, they're, they're totally equal. Dear old Uncle Sam needs to step in and teach the, show these people what the sensible solutions are. We don't talk about the billions of dollars that we fund to Israel each year for armaments. We don't talk about the fact that the United Nations has just declared Israel to be an apartheid state. We don't talk about the fact that the Israelis occupy Palestine, or when they're not occupying it with their own troops, they're making sure that uh, the people of Gaza, the people of the West Bank, have no power whatsoever in the international realm. They don't even have, well, they don't have the freedom of movement. Um, they don't have the right to uses of their own water in Palestinian uh, uh, maritime water on um, on the Mediterranean coastline of Palestine. They barely have the right to fish without being bombed by um, Israeli torpedoes. Um, so America will say nothing. How can you have a sensible conversation that cannot, in its very existential nature, cannot speak truth? You cannot have a discourse which is totally alien to truth that can speak truth. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's why democracy and hypocrisy of this scale are um, irreconcilable, I'm afraid. One thing I, I want to ask about is, you know, so it, it, se it seems like in, in the current population, there is 
growing distrust when it comes to authority. So, for example, you see uh, on on uh, the Democratic side, let's say, uh, th- there's a distrust of police um, with the Black Lives Matter movements. And I guess on, on the other side, there's, there's uh, distrust when it comes to social welfare and, and uh, these sorts of authority. And at the same time, I don't know whether it, this is something that's really happening or it's just perceived, but uh, th- there seems to be uh, this, this growing incidence of uh, conspiracy. So, for example, you know, just a couple of years ago, if, if I mentioned... Uh, for example, anti-vaxxers. The, the, the average person would think that an anti-vaxxer is stupid. Uh, but now I, I personally know people who are anti-vax uh, with regards to the coronavirus vaccine. Um, and, and conspiracy theories are also, in some sense, they're bipartisan. You know, I, you, you'll speak to... Uh, you speak to anyone and they will say it's always the other side that's anti-science, for example. Um, but you'll see that, um, you know, maybe Republicans will be deniers when it comes to climate change. Maybe Democrats will be anti-GMO. Um, Anti-vax is spread across both parties. And so is I, I want to understand, is, is, is this... Is this something that's that, that's uh, being this this anti-authoritarianism uh, on on both sides? Is is this something that you know? Is is this the public recognizing that that there are games being played, or or is this itself a symptom of of of? Uh, is this something that? Uh, pressure groups that ha- hold power want to to occur in the population, or is it something they don't want to ha- have happen? I, I I can't really. It's it's difficult for me to gauge. No, it's, it's, I know it's a difficult question. Uh, no, no. You're, you're uh, you, you, of course we have to ask the question, and I don't think I'm capable of uh, any more. Uh, of a sensible answer uh, than you're capable of, Shane. I, I very much doubt if I am. Um, we can ask the question. We can we can note there are a lot of a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that just seems weird. And and it, but even more worrying than that, it just doesn't seem to be based in any evidence that uh, we as scientists uh, would recognise, or at least we as people who you know believe in the importance of empirical facts to support claims. You know. So, uh, the, the, and there's a lot of that kind of stuff going around. What what sense should we make of it? What are the implications of that for, for example, for the political process? Does it, for example, uh, suggest that um, the Republican Party now uh, has learned how to politicize conspiracy theories um, so as to improve its chances of success in uh, in in the next election? Uh, the politicians don't have to believe the conspiracy theory. I mean, they may do, but that's 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 beside the point. It's 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 picking up on things that you think will help you win elections, and and that's very, to me, that's uh, steeped in post World War Two uh, belief uh, in democracy. Uh, you know, this is very disturbing. And then it get and but and then I have to not only do I have to deal with, with some of that, 
Uh, but I have to deal with the fact, I have to live with the fact that some so-called conspiracy theories, which I happen to believe there's extremely good evidence to support, uh, but which many other people don't, and which if I make a claim to, or if I am seen to support, I will alienate some of my listeners whom I really, really would not want to alienate. So, I've, uh, so in other words, it's dangerous to say you believe that a conspiracy yes. theory is real because you'll be seen well, as a... Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please, please, please continue your thought, Shane. Please, yeah. So, so you're saying that uh, there is, is... Could you give me an example? Is uh, Maybe yeah. you don't want to give no, me no, an example. No, I, I, I can give one example because it's just such a well-known example. Um, it's, it's very obvious to most people, what most intelligent people, what the problem is. Uh, so it's, it's the JFK uh, assassination. Is it one loony guy? who is responsible for the killing of uh, John F. Kennedy uh, in 1963, or was it the major other alternative narrative for which I believe there is considerable support, uh, or, or was it a conspiracy by, um, uh, by the intelligence community of the United States in alliance with certain other political groups, including the anti-Cuban or rather the anti-Castro uh, Cuban population in Miami and maybe one or two other groups, uh, uh, was it to make sure that um, Kennedy would have no chance whatsoever to fulfill the promise of his uh, commencement speech at, um, um, at Washington, I'm going to say Washington University, but I, I, I may be mistaken in which as to which uh, university it was just a few months before his assassination. What is it that he says in that speech? He says, um, we don't believe in communism, but you know what? Russians are human beings. Actually, Russians have done some pretty good things. They pretty much won the Second World War for us. They sacrificed millions of their lives. We just sacrificed a few thousand. At immense suffering and cost to the Russian nation. Russians breathe the same air as we do. We live in perilous times. We almost went to war using nuclear weapons. We don't want this to happen again. We cannot allow this to happen again. Human to human, we cannot allow this to happen again. Okay, what is the implication? The implication is... We have to learn to tolerate one another, to live on the same planet, to make what we can of this joint ownership of this planet. That's, that's the Kennedy argument, in essence. There's more to it. It's a beautiful, beautiful speech, by the way. And in, within the same framework, uh, we know that Kennedy was already clearly grasping to make sure that the... Um, stupid, stupid U.S. intervention in Vietnam should be put to an end as soon as possible. So, but, the, but that's just speculation. Then you go into a whole, whole 50, 60 years of controversy over various sets of empirical information to support the various narratives that exist as to why Kennedy was killed in November that's a conspiracy theory. You have to pick your fights. That is a conspiracy theory that in our, on other platforms, 
I would stand up and I would say, I defend this. It ain't conspiracy. It's information. It's evidence. It's fact. And also, it's very much in the character of how America plays its games. I'll stand up. And then there are others that maybe you would decide is not the trench you're going to die in. I'm definitely not going to die in the anti-faxer trench. And I'm definitely not going to die in any COVID trench. And I, 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 you know, I regret the fact that some some friends have decided to, to pitch their tents on some of those fields because it's way too soon. Yeah, be selective. Choose carefully. But so, so, uh, but, but, uh, okay, so, so there, there are conspiracies, for example, that you may uh, believe are worth listening to, but that you recognize uh, it's not worthwhile being viewed as someone who believes in that conspiracy. I, yeah, I, if I think it's true, I'll probably stand for it. Uh, but some of these issues are so bloody complicated, truly do require someone uh, who is scientifically, has, has the appropriate scientific credentials. I'll steer clear of it because I just don't trust my capacity uh, to make a judgment. I don't trust my capacity to make a judgment even on things I'm supposedly expert on. Um, but you know, there are times when I think I have to take a stand because not to take a stand is to actually implicitly endorse an even worse falsehood. I guess in your research, you for decades now, you've been looking at sort of actual conspiracies uh, committed by a government and... I suppose after some decades of that, it, it, it's hard not to be a little bit cynical uh, with regards to the way that the world works. I um, no, I didn't. I certainly didn't start off. Uh, in fact, I I, 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 <laughs> I think I'll go so far as to say I am not an expert on conspiracy. I'm not interested actually in conspiracy theories. No, no, that, that's uh, not what I've meant. No. Of course, I, yeah. I, I meant if that's not what I meant. What I what I meant to say is that. When you study governments and and you look at the way that governments interact with each other behind the scenes, I am sure you come across situations where you lose faith in your own government, and and, and that's what I meant. Okay. And okay. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying that you spend your time uh, researching conspiracies. Far from no. it. I'm 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 simply stating that. Thank you. <laughs> It must be difficult not to become a little bit cynical when you see governments doing things that you might think of as being disgusting um, yeah. uh, time and time again. Yeah, I, I think I think this is true. Um, I think I come, uh, but I, I think uh, other scholars from in other parts of the world might look across uh, to me and say, Boyd Barrett, why did it take you so long to grow up, for Christ's sake? You know, we knew this when we were... At, um, Sucking milk at our mother's breast, uh, you know, scholars in, in in the south, scholars in in, in the old in the former colonies, mm. might very well say that to me. Where were you all these years before you began to add your voice to what is so patently uh, the case, namely that countries, the elites of countries look after their own interests, they exploit their political systems to achieve their objectives, and um, they tell stories about what they're doing 
so that uh, innocent little people like you, Oliver Barrett, Boyd Barrett, will, 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 will believe them for the best part of their lives so that we can go on doing what we can do at minimum expense and with the greatest freedom. So it's, it's, within, it's with that kind of shame, I think. I, re, I uh, Yes, I mean, I, I've always been, I think it's true to say, uh, um, on the left uh, center of things. I was born in Ireland. Uh, I was raised uh, with narratives of um, uh, the Irish Revolution in the 1920s. Um, Which was uh, a violent enough affair, I suppose. And, and raised with awareness of the evilness of colonialism in general. Mm. Going back to Oliver Cromwell, who was the first person to colonize Ireland and sent off. Not, not only did he kill thousands of Irish men and women in the cities that he besieged, with the methods of medieval warfare. And this is the great founder of English democracy. He's, he, he, he also, the number, colony number two is Jamaica. And, and he rounds up a lot of the, I guess, a lot of the Irish dissidents and, and sends them off to work as slaves in Jamaica. So before we had black slaves in Jamaica, we had white slaves and they spoke with an Irish accent. That's the background uh, to my predisposition to being critical. But then I, I got interested in the media for all kinds of reasons. And uh, at the time I was at university as an undergraduate and subsequent, in the subsequent years, my impression, because I see, I, I read The Guardian, I've read The Times, I've read The... I thought these are quite intelligent people, they're more intelligent than I am. I mean, they've been to Oxford, they've been to Cambridge, you know. Some of these journalists have actually had political power. You know, these, these are people you've got to take seriously. And they were telling me about the end of the British Empire. You know, Britain magnanimously said, oh, dear India, please take back your country. We love you. Oh, dear Nigeria, what are we doing here? Here's your country. We're giving it back. So I grew up in this um, era of supposed um, independence, the, the, the great independence movement. And um, a large part of me believed it. And a large part of me thought, well, the only issues now, really, is not to do with empire anymore, but it's how quickly these wealthy Western countries can get out of the countries that they previously colonized and start allowing those countries more autonomy, more meaningful political and economic autonomy in their respective regions and in the conduct of their affairs. Freedom from our uh, foreign policy institutions, freedom from our multinational corporations, freedom uh, in the realm of communication to produce their own messages for the rest of the world, not to be dependent on London-based Reuters or Paris-based Agence France Press or Washington-based Associated Press. These are all the institutions of imperialism. You guys need your own voices. And we need to listen to those voices. So this is the kind of liberal 
uh, era, um, atmosphere, ambiance, intellectual ambiance that I grew up with, which, by the way, was being deeply shaped by no less than the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Which was what, which, The Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is the beginning of the CIA's ingress into the world of total immersion propaganda. The C- <clears throat> It's a lovely name for oh, that. Oh, yes. You've got to start doing it. It's, your, it's uh, yeah. Orwellian. Do, 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 do your research, uh, Shane, because very few people remember these stories anymore. So here was the CIA through the Congress for Cultural Freedom subsidizing uh, liberal, faintly left-wing newspapers and magazines, um, radio stations, um, all manner of ways in which culturally – and intellectually, the CIA wanted to shape intelligent thought in the West in a direction that favored the interests of American capitalism. In the wake of that, we got the phenomenon of Operation Mockingbird. The title is sometimes um, disputed. Was that term ever used within the CIA? Doesn't matter whether it was used or not. But the reality is, as we know from three or maybe four different congressional inquiries in the 1970s, the Church Inquiry, Senate Investigation Committee, the Pike Inquiry, House of Representatives um, Committee of Inquiry, the um, the Rockefeller Commission, can't remember whether that's Senate or House of Representatives or, or whatever. They're saying what they're finding is the CIA has penetrated mainstream media in the West, generally, with their own people. Uh, Not only regular journalists are being bought, but also the owners and proprietors and senior management of uh, some of our beloved, principal beloved media institutions are in the pocket of the CIA. And then some celebrated journalists of the period picked up on this, of course, who wouldn't, who didn't at that time, um, uh, I, I, uh, Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame wrote a very, very famous uh, series of articles for Rolling Stone um, on CIA penetration of the media. And also um, uh, the uh, My Lay guy, what's his name? Seymour Hirsch, same thing. I won't know the name. <laughs> so I'm, th- th- this is not, you know, the evidence is there. And then if you want to ask yourself, well, did it stop? simply because the CIA was found out or disclosed this voluntarily? No, it's, it's never stopped. We don't have the, the evidence is not quite so hard, but, but it's there. I mean, it's so obvious to anyone who is monitoring the way in which mainstream media cover the world um, that um, there's a point at which um, a delusion, there's a point at which uh, ideological self-delusion has to stop. And you just have to say, no, these guys know what they're doing. They have to know what they're doing. They're just lying, either because they're paid or they're plants. Um, They're just careerists of the most shallow kind. They don't want to upset their editors. They don't want to upset key sources. It's, um, It's so well documented over so many sources. But, uh, of course, the mainstream media are the last people to tell you any of this, but to scholars, so, so, it's, a, it's more available. 
So, so you're you're able to spend uh, a considerable amount of time doing research in these directions. But for the average person, I, I guess we should probably wrap up. And I wanted to wrap up with uh, an idea of how to actually approach uh, these problems. So, for the average person, how, how do you know? You know, how do you draw the line between being paranoid and uh, being critical? With this fire hose of information that's coming in, how do you how do you know? Should I spend time researching this one? Should I because you read the title, right? And even if you don't read the article, that title is in your brain and it's molding the way you think about issues. So, what what is your recommendation for the way that people should approach uh, media consumption in in a an environment which is filled with disinformation and misinformation. Okay, so here's here's the thing. We, it's, it's, it's commonly said information is power. And, and we ourselves have said that in, in different ways uh, during our very, very interesting conversation. And, and I thank you for it, Shane. It's been a really, really re- rewarding conversation, for me at least. Um, uh, so I want to say that, yes, we, we we've said information is power, and we've looked at examples of how information is used has been politicized uh, for political gain. And, and sure, that happens. But I think the starting point here is not to have exaggerated expectations. Having the information doesn't change the world. There's nothing I can say to anybody, even if they believed it, which is unlikely. There is nothing I can say to anyone that's going to change anything. Why? Because I have no power. And most of the people who would be hearing me have no power. It's power that changes the world, not information. If you want to change the world, you have to gravitate to power. You can do that through political parties. You can do it, maybe you can maybe do it through trades associations. You might be able to do it through influential or potentially influential cultural uh, organizations. You can do it um, through businesses, perhaps, if you get to control or have an influence on a major social medium, then maybe perhaps you can begin to change the world. But you can't change the world without power. And power is not made up of information. Power is made up with the tools that are required to actually physically shape this planet. The rest is just temporary. It's just footprints in the sand that will be covered by the next wave and quickly forgotten about, however scandalous and awful it seemed at the time. It will not be remembered. I've lived long enough to know this. People don't remember it. Shit all. Change the world, you've got to have power. Then you look for where the power is or where the power can be created. And you stop obsessing totally about information. Of course, you go to sensible people, people whose judgments you admire. And if you can, you ask them, well, where do you go? What sources do you recommend? What, who, who do you trust to shape your information uh, environment? And what doubts do you have? Because if you're a human being and you don't have a doubt, I worry about you. On that note, Oliver, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I'm very glad to have had you on, on, on board here. Thank you.
as part of the podcast. Thank, thank you very much. It's been been an honour to talk with you, Shane, and, and good luck with you and, and, and with the series. <laughs> thank you very much. Could I, in, in, in post-questioning, ask you two uh, unrelated questions? Well, semi-related. Uh, semi the, the, the first is, I'm just curious, you mentioned you, you met Gorbachev. Oh, yes. What was he like? Yeah. Uh, it was in a, a somewhat formal uh, context. I was with a group of um, uh, news agency journalists uh, working for the Russian news agency Interfax. I was writing a history of that organization at the time because I was very interested in the development of independent uh, media in post-Soviet uh, uh, Russia. And Interfax seemed to be one of the most interesting. And so they um, uh, they arranged for me uh, to go to meet with Gorbachev in... Um, he, he runs a charity. I can't remember the name of it now. It, it's housed in quite an impressive um, imperial mansion somewhere in, in Moscow. And so there I had the privilege of, uh, of meeting with this historically important individual. Um, uh, and um, this was about 10 years or so uh, uh, ago. And um, I think the most important thing he said to me was, I, I never, it was never, it never crossed my mind in a thousand years that uh, the Soviet Union uh, would would ever be dismembered. That that was not my intention. It was not my intention that the Communist Party um, should be uh, swept from power and it should disintegrate. Uh, that was never, that was never my intention. But what happened along the way was you start making these political changes and uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of toxic substances um, begin to seep to the surface. And in this instance, the toxic substances were um, right-wing uh, nationalist uh, discourses based on identity politics across the entirety of the former uh, Soviet Union, who wanted nothing to do uh, with Moscow, uh, wanted nothing to do uh, with the with the Communist Party, and that was a dam that once broken was very very difficult for Gorbachev or for anybody else um, to um, uh, to block. Uh, so I think that's that's the one most important. Uh, but there was another slightly um, more human thing that I remember very much from that meeting, and it was as we were coming out um, of the room where this interview was taking place. Um, I, I notice a very large uh, portrait, um, uh, and for, I, I shouldn't, I, I always forget her name, unfortunately, which is unforgivable, but of, of Gorbachev's wife, um, who was a, a, a very, uh, the, the Western press loved her, actually, and I guess the Western press helped, made us love her as well. Uh, she was beautiful to look at, uh, but she was also uh, immensely, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, she she spoke to the people when she spoke, mm -hmm. uh, very sincerely and, and, and frankly. And uh, when she was alive, she was now dead this time. You could sense, yeah. You know, if any, if anyone made Gorbachev, it's her. Mm -hmm. If anyone wanted real change, it was her, and she inspired you, Mikhail. Uh, and I was looking at this beautiful portrait. Uh, and, and just gazing at it for a few seconds. And, and Gorbachev is coming out of the room at the same time, and he, he catches my eye. Uh, and he, he stands next to me, and, and he also gazes up at the portrait of... She died of illness of some kind. 
mm-hmm. a few years prior, and uh, he gazes up uh, very wistfully, and he says, "You know, uh, that photo was taken by an American photojournalist," and he just left it at that. But what, what I picked up uh, was her her importance to him. Mm. And I and yeah. and was it was there so that there was nothing behind him pointing out that it was an American. I think uh, beyond. I think he he had been introduced to me uh, uh, as an American um, because I was working for an American university at that time. So I, I think he, he was simply trying to be fraternal. Uh, try, trying to be nice. I, I didn't read anything really, any anything deeper in, other than perhaps uh, he was saying, I, I, I respect you. I, I respect America. I respect American journalists. I respect American academics. But you know, sad thing. The, the guy who had set that interview up for me, uh, he was the um, the founder and chair of this news agency I told you about uh, called Interfax. It was the first non-state news agency that had ever been. It was, he set it up under Gorbachev before mm-hmm. the transition had, uh, had, had, had occurred. And um, he had learned his journalistic lessons from organizations like Reuters and Associated Press and Bloomberg. He was particularly impressed by Bloomberg's ability to make money out of financial information because he saw that as the route to become the Russian version of Reuters. And that's what exactly what he did. So he was very gung-ho about the West when I first uh, met him in 2011. But then a couple of years ago, just before COVID, um, I had an opportunity to go, not at this time, not in a research capacity. I was teaching a course or, or, or I, I was, yeah, I was doing a couple of classes for Moscow, um, for a private uh, Moscow uh, university, Higher School of Economics, it's called. Very good institution, by the way. And um, I, so I, I went to see him, and um, he just seemed, you know, he's like, he's like a man whose dreams and sense of self certainty had been crushed. He could barely talk about a whisper. Uh, and, um, he said, you know, it, it happened overnight, overnight. Well, what had happened overnight? Western media stopped trying to tell the truth, stopped trying to tell the facts that in essence, he didn't use those words, but that was my interpretation. And I'll use someone else's words because I think this is what he was saying. At that point, Western media is telling the story according to their foregone conclusion. It's, what, what prompted him to say it's, that? Do it, you... it's, in other words, he's saying, this is conclusion-driven journalism that we now have. It's not the kind of Western journalism that so impressed me when I set up Interfax uh, back in the, um, in the Gorbachev years. Yes, what prompted him to say that was I was trying to, I, I was inviting him to talk about the changed uh, climate of uh, international uh, media uh, in, the, in, in, in this space of time, uh, with reason. Because as I, do, as I do further research, I realize that um, I can't speak for the United States, but I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that if we take Great Britain 
Um, uh, Great Britain seems to be one of the most prolific uh, actors in the modern uh, propaganda networks of the world. And um, but if, if you want to trace that back, I think it's 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 to 2014. You suddenly realise that the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office are suddenly taking propaganda way more seriously than they have in the recent past uh, and devoting much, much more money to it. Why? Because they think that, um, you know, old-fashioned weapons are no longer very important. Hegemony is achieved through information and perception. I think I think that, that that's the essence of it. It's a changed uh, philosophy, and it changes everything, and it changes their determination. Because they, they now know, they saw how badly the West fared as a result of the 2003 invasion of Iraq on totally false pretexts. They know, they've got to win, they've got to take propaganda seriously. You can't win an information war if you say you're going to invade a sovereign country, break all the rules of international um uh, legality uh, by invading a sovereign country on the and you say well it's because uh, not only do they have weapons of mass destruction but they, they, they it looks like they're intending to use those weapons Tony Blair got up in Parliament they, 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 they could use those weapons in 20 minutes this is the kind of rubbish the Brits with the help of Americans of course were spouting Back at that time, and you know anyone. And this this had become obvious to Gorbachev. It, it had become obvious to my good friend um, Mikhail Kamisar, uh, the founder of Interfax News Agency. Whether it had become obvious to Gorbachev, I don't know. I, I, we didn't talk about that particular about that particular um, issue. I think Gorbachev was still of a mind that um, because the last time I saw him after war was before this time was back in two thousand and eleven. So he's 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 still in the state of delusion. Uh, yeah, the Americans do some awful things, but you know, by and large, they do stand for some good things. And hey, you know, freedom of information, wonderful thing. Democracy, a wonderful thing. Um, but by 2014, uh, bit by bit, people like him, and particularly, and certainly, certainly, uh, Interfax become a great deal more skeptical about all of that. And they've had, they've only had reason to become even more skeptical in the intervening six or seven years between then and uh, as we speak now in 2021. There's uh, one one last thing. I, I know your voice is probably going, you're probably, but I have to ask, um, while I have you here, while I have <laughs> uh, the ability to ask you, Armenia, Turkey, Russia, the Karabakh crisis, uh, do you have any understanding of what Russia and Turkey gained in the recent conflict or from the recent conflict? Right. I have a, it's doesn't, it partly answers this question. I have a recent article, a very recent article. Uh, you'll find it on uh, the site Dissident, I think, oh, wait a minute. I think, yes, it was a Dissident Voice uh, dot. Org, uh, and I can't remember the title. It's 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 I'm 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 it's it's an an analysis of Turkey. Turkey is a really interesting country to be looking at right now. Really interesting. We are seeing a resurgence. I call it well, many other people call it uh, neo Ottomanism. Ottomanism. This is the neo Ottoman Empire, the empire that Ataturk thought he had put in its grave, but actually. 
well, Ataturk wasn't too smart either. He, like Gorbachev, he, he thought these Western ideals, he, he believed more in the ideals than, than in the practice. If he, if he, if he had thought for a moment, he would have wondered whether he was doing the right thing by overnight outlawing, um, uh, traditional Islamic dress and outlawing, well, basically outlawing anything that smacked of extremist, uh, Islam and, um, and all kinds of other things and the, and the fez, the, 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 uh, the uh, customary Ottoman hat, all those kind of things that he did in the name of modernity. Really stupid, because we now know as a result of the sociology and anthropology, culture doesn't work that way. Culture doesn't do what you tell it to do. Culture takes its own time and does things in its own way. And woe betide the man who thinks like King Canute, he can sit on the border of the ocean and say, stop. That's Ataturk's failing. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the great virtue, the great, politically speaking, not morally, the great virtue of Erdogan is he's understood that. And he's understood the one thing that you can tap into to make Turkey great again is Islam. Uh, and also identity politics, the Turkic community, which basically connects Turkey to the Uyghurs in Western China, who are also a Turkic people, who speak a language that is similar to Turkish. Uh, what about uh, Azerbaijan? Uh, are they related? Uh, to yes. So Azerbaijan uh, is a Turkic uh, people, very, very long, strong ties that connect Turkey with Azerbaijan. Armenia is principally a Christian um, population. Um, um, whose, uh, of course, whose brothers and sisters were slaughtered in what the United States is now choosing to call, uh, the genocide of, uh, 1915 against the Armenian Turks. I, I put it in that language because you've got to watch the United States when it chooses to use the genocide word and when it doesn't. It doesn't choose to talk about slavery and, and, and treatment of the blacks as genocide. It doesn't choose un, un, unless it's Maybe some states will decide that uh, treatment of Native Americans was genocide, but America doesn't. So um, yeah, we we get very choosy in, in when when we when we and then America has decided that um, on, on the basis of virtually no evidence has decided that um, Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs is genocide, not 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 simply abuse. But genocide, even though the Uyghur population is now three times the size as, as it was in year 2000. I mean, some of these things get to the point of such absurdity that you really do begin uh, to lose faith in the power of rationality at all. Going back to Turkey, that's, 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 that's the heart of it. Azerbaijan lies closer to Turkish expansionist interests. Russia loses because Russia was Armenia's uh, ally. Um, although on this particular instance, it decided not to lift a finger of support for Armenia over the conflict of the um, mainly Armenian territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. So I think Turkey wins big time. Turkey begins to think, oh, wow, this Turkic thing, it could work. If we, if we follow this logic of Turkic ethnic ties, we'll be back to controlling half the civilized world again. Well, maybe not so civilized, but half the world anyway. <laughs> Russia loses.
But so if Russia loses, why did they decide not to help an ally? Yeah, that, that's a, I, I don't have a good question. Uh, I think probably we can find it out by uh, going to, um, uh, to, uh, to sources that invite Russian experts um, to, to talk about these issues. And I, I, I frankly, I've not had the time. To, uh, one such source, for example, is, uh, if you don't know if you know it, it's the Valdai Club. It's V-A-L-D-A-I. Um, and that is it's known to be quite a credible and important uh, source of insight into how uh, Russian experts, and, you know, people who are Russian, who, who are, who are mm-hmm. by, by, by nation, who, who are Russian, uh, and you, you hear them talking about these kind of issues and, and it, uh, it affords you new insights. So I think Russia plays its cards very, very carefully. Uh, I don't think Russia is not remotely as reckless as the Americans make them out to be or as NATO makes them out to be. I think uh, the people who seem to be reckless uh, are the United States and uh, and the NATO countries. They, they, they seem to fit the criteria of recklessness, not Russia. It might have something to do with a power imbalance and who actually can be reckless and who can't be. Escaped Sapiens.